Uh, today we, we're doing sort of a different kind of format. We are pushing the pause button on our series in the book of Galatians that we've been going through uh, a section at a time, and we're going to have uh, a special guest speaker with us this morning. He's a, a dear friend of mine, a mentor uh, in my life for uh, coming up on a decade now. His name is Pastor Kevin York, and Pastor Kevin lives in Nashville, Tennessee with his wife and his family. Uh, we'll get to that in a, sort of in, in a second. Uh, his day job is he functions as the executive director for Every Nation Churches, which is a global church planning and, uh, and, and campus ministry starting movement. Kevin actually is connected to just about every movement in church organization across the globe. Uh, he travels the globe, as a matter of fact, coaching and pastoring uh, leaders and teams and churches on every continent except for Antarctica, a little too cold for a West Texas boy like yourself, uh, but to travels the globe, every culture and context, coaching uh, churches and pastors. He deeply loves Jesus, deeply loves the church, uh, very, very informed individual this morning. Uh, he's, uh, of course, like I said, started in West Texas, successfully planted and pastored a couple of churches there in Abilene and then in Midland before moving to Nashville. Uh, he also has one of the most ethnically diverse families you'll ever meet or hear about. He's got three adult children, and they have, in, in order, married a Mexican-American, Filipino-American, and African-American and all of them have grandchildren. So, uh, excuse me, children. So Kevin's got nine grandchildren, uh, three of which were adopted from Ethiopia. So when it comes to holidays, it's a good time at the York House. Uh, when it comes to going places, it's a good time in the York uh, family uh, circus there. So he'll talk more about that in a minute. So uh, that's it for introductions. Would you please give a warm welcome to someone who's helping shape the global state of Christianity today? Kevin, honored to have you. Good to be here. Yeah. So welcome, I'll let you introduce yourself and then we'll sort of get into what we're doing here. Well, it's great to be here. My favorite title is Grandpa. If you call me Grandpa, I give you all my money and all my time. Um, so that is, that, there you go. So afterwards, you can line up. It'll only take five minutes to give you all my money. So that's the bad thing. But it's great to be here. I am married to a smoking hot wife of 37 years. She... Yeah. I'm telling you, she still captivates me. I mean, her eyes, her size six. I mean, she is just, she's just freaky amazing. And uh, every once in a while, she'll turn and she'll go, what are you doing? I said, I'm just staring. Just go back to what you're doing. I'm just staring. Can't believe we've been married. The secret to a good marriage is be captivated by your wife and give her all your money. You're always going to have a great marriage. If that, could we hear it for that? Give them your money. Yeah. And always let them captivate you. My wife has a Vulcan mind meld in me. And when I'm, when I'm gone, I, I've been on the front row worshiping Jesus and thinking of my smoking hot wife. So Very good. that's the way to do it. And my, we do have a diverse family. We, we have, you know, my oldest married a, a Mexican bodybuilder and a great businessman. So he's built just like me. His biceps the size of my legs. And um, his name is Rick. And so when they birthed kids, they gave birth. We have brown. He's very brown. My daughter's very, very white. So they birthed a mocha and a latte and then adopted two blacks. So there's brown, white, mocha, latte, black, black. And that's the first one. And then my middle daughter married an African-American. And he trains NBA players and D1 players and has a company. And he, so he upskills them. And he's, he's got a six-pack. I didn't know you could cut a human's stomach like that. So it's very similar to mine. And... Um, and he's African-American, Kenina, 360 behind the back, slam dunk, just like his father-in-law. And, um, and so they gave birth to Cream Swirl and adopted Mulatto. 
So we have brown, white, mocha latte, black, black. We have black, white, swirl, cream, and mulatto. So we sit down with my son and we said, listen, we've got Europe covered. We've got Africa covered. We've got South America covered. We've got North America covered. So you must marry an Asian. See, it's all about strategic planning. (laughs) And um, so he married, born and raised in the Philippines, Kyra, drop-dead gorgeous, all my... They all look airbrushed. In fact, none of them look like me. They have my feet. But um, all of them are gorgeous. And so we have our white, yellow, and then they gave birth to Banana, the little Jack. So when we go into a restaurant, all 17 of us, including my parents, nobody knows who's with who. It is, it is, is confusing. Uh, and then... We always end every family get-together with a dance-off. So we put on EDM music, because you know EDM is a... You know, and it's got the beats, and then all the grandkids jump out on the floor and begin to dance. And it is absolutely an amazing life. Should we pray and finish? That's my sermon. <laughs> and so, therefore, the reason they called me to be the executive director of every nation is this is the only church group that would take us. <laughs> we applied everywhere, but this is the only one that would take us as that group. So, Fair enough, fair enough. Anyhow. That's good stuff right there. you can't take it from there, huh? <laughs> Turn it into spiritual things. <laughs> oh, man, hard. that's tough. Yeah. Watching you squirm Squirm, now. yeah, right. Very good, yeah. So I'm, we're just still, I'm wondering who won the dance-off, if you're going to, thought that you were going to introduce yourself. Little uh, Kaysen. Okay. Little Kaysen yeah. is cream, and <laughs> she's cream. She was the black-white Kaysen, and this is how she dances. Uh-oh, don't, so don't hurt yourself. You. All right. She puts one hand up like this, and she goes... And she gets the beat perfect every time. Yeah. Exactly. So she's got the coolest, smoothest dance of all. So, and thank you. I have no moves. So. Very good. All right. So what we're doing here besides really doing stand-up. turning this into uh, a spiritual morning. Is we're going to do a little Q&A here. And, and just in the hopes that Kevin can give us what I trust will be some really precious context as to what we're doing here, who we are as a church, and really what the global state of Christianity looks like and sort of how we fit into that. So we've got a series of questions. We'll try to navigate those as, as best we can in the time that we have and uh, let him kind of preach a mini-sermon in response to every question. It went fantastic first service, and so excited for what we're going to do here. So yeah, let's pray here, then we'll get into our time. And So Lord, would you just now meet us? in these questions, Lord, in these answers, and help our hearts to see what you're doing. Lord, we just love you. Thank you for calling us to be a part of your, your great thing, and Lord, church, and movement across the world. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So again, as we get into these questions, you'll see that they're sort of aimed at, at a sort of an insider church kind of you know, context like this, but if you're a new person here, if you're, if you're just joining us for the first week, we're glad you're here. If you're even a non-Christian and you've walked in, we're glad you're here, uh, because this actually is the, probably the best week you could have picked to come, because you're going to sort of see what's under the hood here. You're going to see how our heart beats and what's on the inside of us as a church here, and, and hopefully connect to us that way. So let's begin here with that in mind, and number one, and just ask sort of a broad question, but it's a, uh, Kevin had a fantastic answer first service. Kevin, uh, from your perspective, what things, here's question number one, what what things have caused churches to thrive 
and or die throughout history. The reason that's a very important and actually critical question is because typically if, when a question like that is asked, you would typically think outside of the church and what is going on in the culture. And those things would either threaten the church's existence or not threaten the church's existence. But that's actually not true. Um, what makes the church thrive and what threatens the church deeply lies within the soul of the individual church and with the church as a collective. And so throughout all of church history, we know that the reason we die is because of us and the reason, reason we thrive is because of us. It's interesting that Paul was writing the book of Romans to a group of about 100 Christians when the book of Romans was written. Um, and they obviously lived in Rome, and it was made up of Romans that had converted to Christ and Greeks that had converted, converted to Christ and some of Paul's family members that were Jews that had converted to Christ. And Paul had actually not been to Rome, but Rome was a city of about a half a million pagans. Now, think of the odds, a hundred to a half a million. How many of you know that a half a million to... Some scholars say Rome could have even had a million people living in it in its day because of the engineering. And so it was quite pagan. It has everything that we see in our country only on steroids. The immorality was like nothing you ever would see anywhere in the world, all aspects of immorality. The, 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 the violence, instead of video games, it was you would take your children to the, you know, you would take them to see the gladiators. And at the end, your teenager or your kid is doing either this or this and watching a real head be separated from a body. So it was steeped in violence. It was steeped in immorality. It was steeped in abuse of women. It was steeped in, in uh, all kinds of trouble. And Paul's writing a letter to them. And he wanted them to know that there was only one problem in Rome. The shocking thing is when you open the Bible, it never addresses the evil of the politics. It never addresses the Republicans or the Democrats. It doesn't blame those televangelists. It doesn't blame the church. It cuts straight to the issue. And this is what Paul told Rome. With all those trouble, could have blamed Nero. Could have blamed the fact that they were being hunted and killed some, in some quarters. They could have blamed the immorality. They could have blamed the culture. But Paul wrote them and said this. He said, hi, my name is Paul. He hadn't even been there yet. So my name is Paul. I'm called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ who proved he was God because he was raised from the dead. And of this gospel, I'm not ashamed. Don't ever be ashamed of the gospel. And he said, I want to tell you what's wrong with Rome. I'm sure there was a loud gasp as they were reading that letter throughout the churches. He said, this is what's wrong with Rome. When Roman citizens walk outside and look at the message, the sermon that nature preaches of, wow, look at creation. If there is a creation like that, there must be a God. He said, when they come outside and they listen to that sermon and refuse that sermon, it begins to twist their soul and the demise of humanity begins there. The only threat to the church, the only problem that we have at all is when we lose the fact that the gospel is the most important thing of Jesus Christ because nothing in our culture ever slows the church down or speeds the church up. And we can see a kind of 
90-year history in the letters in the book of Revelation that were written to the seven churches there in now what we call Turkey. All of those, all of those churches that were written about in the book of Revelation, those were churches that are exist in Turkey. Now, if you think of it, the greatest church in that day was the church at Ephesus. Think about this as far as a church. So let's say the church here at Mosaic, let's say Paul was alive and all those dudes were alive, they would replace Morgan for Timothy. How many of you know Timothy was a rather great pastor, if you know anything about Christianity? Paul picked Timothy to be the pastor. Paul moves to Ephesus, and for two years he trains all these people, that, and that's where the elders were trained, in the Hall of Tyrannus for two years. How many of you think if John and Galen were trained for two years by Paul himself every day, how many of you think they would be far better elders than they are now? No, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. But how many of you know that, so, so they, they were great, well-trained leaders, hand-picked. Timothy, the best numero uno pastor in the world, Paul's hand-picked pastor. Not only that, but John the great theologian is a church member, and we know that Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, turned to John and said, John, take care of mom. So imagine this in your church, trained eldership by Paul, Timothy's the pastor, John the theologian that wrote the book of John and John's, he's sitting on the front row, and Mary the mother of Jesus is sitting on the front row. How many of you would have questions for Mary the mother of Jesus? <laughs> now, how many think the deck, the deck is stacked? And you're right, it became the most profound church in Asia Minor, and it rocked the world. Ephesus is about a quarter of a million people. Zoom forward 30 years. John was the member there. Much later, John, because of Claudius and his reign to power after Nero, he decides to silence John's voice because persecution had hit the church at Ephesus. And remember, persecution never does anything to create the demise of Christianity, it, all that it does is clarify if Christianity is really there. And to let you know, if you're reading the USA Today in the last week or few days, and you've seen the Pew Report that was just released, this is what that means. Christianity is not on the decline in America. It's on the define. The church that was Christian in name only is now dropping the name. But the true church in America, profound things are happening. And so there's a counter trend to the trend. The current trend is this. It's no longer cool to be Christian. So those who are Christian in name only are dropping the name because it's no longer cool. And cool is not what Jesus wanted the church to be. Amen. He wanted it to be converted following him. And so something happened at the church in Ephesus. And John, uh, Claudius decides to silence his voice. So what, what do you do back in those days before the internet? You take John and you banish him to a small island 35 miles off the coast of Turkey called Patmos. And thinking he would shut him up. And that's where John got, where Jesus stepped into the prison cell and gave John the book of Revelation. And think of this, the first church that Jesus spoke to him about was his home church. And John is a few years older than me. He's over 80. <laughs> He's mostly dead by now. 
And he's sitting in that room, and this is what this is what Jesus tells him. He says, John, to the church at Ephesus, I write. Now, I guarantee you at that moment he quit breathing. Because God's speaking to him about his home church, the dream church. But something was happening. It was already falling apart. And you couldn't blame it on those churches. There weren't any churches. They were first churches. Couldn't blame it on the denominations. Couldn't blame it on nominal Christianity. You couldn't blame it on the government. And he says this. He says, I know your works. And they're amazing. I know you are well preached. In fact, with the theologian and Timothy and the eldership, you are so well preached that the cults find no root in you. Some of the other churches, the cults found root in them. You'll read the other churches. They were not that well taught. And so when you find orthodoxy in a church, someone that believes that this Bible is the inerrant scripture of God, that believes this Bible is not open to redefinition because of what rises up in the culture, but it always is contemporary. It always speaks to every aspect of life. That in this it is sufficient. The sufficiency of scripture. And they were well taught, but he said, I have this against you. You've left your first love. What did he mean by the first love? He meant this. What has happened in your church is you are great at preaching and you're orthodox, but you've lost your love for one another as a Christian community. And I want to tell you something. When an orthodox church becomes loveless, that is the demise of the church. It's the beginning of the falling apart of a church. Because when you find a church where people sell their lives out to community, yes. where they, they, they not only feel one another's pain, but they engage in one another's pain, they, they become their brother's keeper. When you find that in a church, this is what the Bible says, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So I don't walk around trashing the church because it is the very thing that Jesus uses to cause a non-believer to take pause and to stare that's what l- brought me into the community of, uh, into faith is, is, is people that actually loved one another because that's so rare it is so rare and so what I think causes church to thrive is simply this it's the love of Christ and it's orthodoxy When you are well preached and you have passionate love for one another, you can rock the world in any culture, anywhere, in any day, and in any time. But when you lose one of those others, you fall into the classic historical church ditches. You lose orthodoxy, everything becomes a possibility. If you lose your love, you're just, you're preaching great, but there's no power behind there. How many of you know that the love of Christ is the most bothersome thing to ever have? How many of you, Jesus just nags you? He goes, I know you're tired, John. I know you've been operating on people, cutting them open and all this stuff you do, John. But John, I know you're exhausted. But John, you're going to tell them about me. John, you're gonna, I don't want to. I'm too busy. I am constantly tired flying on planes. I live on planes. You know you're in trouble when you walk on and they go, hi, Mr. York. 
You know you're in trouble when they go, we know you wanted the sea bass. We know that's where you live. Now, because I have a smoking hot wife, whom I don't get to see very often, when I land, what do you think is on my mind? (laughs) Sharing Jesus with my neighbor? No. Sacrificing for Christians at Bethel where I attend church? No. No. My smoking hot wife is on the mind. And inevitably, when I board the plane, exhausted from flying and talking, I sit down on the plane, my world, and Jesus goes, they're hurting next to you. And I go, who gives a rip? (laughs) Not moi. See, the reason love, remember the Bible says this, of the eternal attributes of God, there are three critical ones, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And the reason is when you find a church where the love of Christ is compelling them, It causes you to engage the impossible and go beyond your own selfish little world. Even when you don't like it. Even when you don't have time. I want to drive by the Hindu and the Universalist and the good old Nashville pagans houses without them being in the backyard so I can see my smoking hot wife. And Jesus makes them go into the backyard in the alley and stand out there and wait for me when I drive by. (laughs) He puts a depraved human sitting next to me with every evil the world has ever heard of and then makes them turn to me and goes, what do you do for a living? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Very good. I say, my name is Morgan Stevens. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Very good. You love. Things that causes the church to thrive. The love of Christ. And stick into the Bible. Yeah. Great. Causes the church to thrive. Yeah. Bring it down a little more here locally in our context today. And obviously, uh, you hear, you see what we're doing here. Kevin was actually here at our request about a year ago or so and came in incognito and sort of, you know, took a, a bird's eye view of what we're trying to do here as a church. And so, with what you know about us, and of course, if you're, if you're new here, part of our vision is to be a multi-generational, a multi-ethnic church made up of all kinds of people here. And Kevin, uh, how, how difficult is that? How, you know, how rare is that? How challenging is that? Because again, we're not just trying to you know collect people for people you know just to collect folks we're trying to do something here together to 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 proclaim the gospel in the city when we gather so again bringing it from you know across the world down into our local context how how does what we do fit in you know is it difficult challenging etc well the u.s is shifting dramatically um obviously if you live in texas you're very aware that texas is more brown than it is any color and so there, the, America is going darker. The shades and hues are going darker. That is the population drift. And so, um, missiologically, or if you put on your gospel lens, you have to address that. And one of the current swells in this nation is the multi-ethnic part of community. 
not diversity where you leave your diverse monoethnic place that you live and drive and have church and then go back to your diverse life. But there's a real blending and mixing that looks very much like this. So if you're going to plant a church, the easiest church to to plant and what was taught for the last 50 years Mm -hmm. in America is reach monogenerational, monoethnic. You'll reach who you are better than anything else. So what that did is it ensured a shelf life in a church of about 25 years. And you impacted about less than 150 people. Now, that's the easiest. Now you begin levels of complexity. Let's say, okay, multi, we're going to be multi-ethnic, monogenerational. That's even harder. Because, you know, how many of you know the Latin world are feelers. When you communicate to Latins, and I was raised in a Latin world, I thought my name was Gabin Jork. I was really upset when I found out I wasn't a Mexican. I mean, I, I thought I was a Mexican. All my friends were Mexican. Uh, and, and so I am culturally more Latino than I am actually white. Thus, my first daughter married a Mexican. That was not shocking. And so um, imagine Morgan having to preach to people whom to get to their head, you have to go through their heart. White intellectuals, to get to their heart, you have to go through their head. Those are radically different styles of preaching. Then when you try to mix music preference. (laughs) I just came from a church planters conference where Pastor Steve spoke, and and, and it was 6,000 snow whites (laughs) and no dwarfs. And they were all... They were all hipsters, and, and I did learn something about hipsters. It looked like a plaid convention. Um, I also learned that hipsters, in their attempt to not be like anybody, look exactly alike to the entire audience. It was, there were more bald heads and long beards and uh, tight jeans with lace-up boots than I've ever seen in my life. I, but I did think it was a plaid convention. Now I wore a little bit of plaid today just so that... You're hipsters. hipsters yeah, would, clearly, yes. I just yeah, you a hipster. Yeah. Um, so I went to that world. Now, we need hipster churches. We need them. But of the top five church planting movements in America, they're all snow white. Now, I cannot tell you how rare this is and how we will not reach America of the future unless this is what the church begins to look like. But let me tell you the complexity. When you do multi-ethnic, multi-generational. You have decided to pull into the room like your three elders have. The most complex tensions that the church will ever see. Yay for us. Yes. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It's like my family meeting and deciding on anything. But listen to what these three men do. They pull in the very issues that cultures and societies can't figure out how to do it. And they say, we accept the tension. And so you pray for them because those are not problems to be solved. They are tensions to manage. 
And I tell my home church that runs 3,000, it's 45% African American and about 35 to 40% white, and then 136 or 56 nations, every hue on the planet. I tell them this, as long as you don't get everything you want, we're probably all doing great. (laughs) When the blacks say, I wish it was blacker, and the whites say, I wish it was whiter, and when the young men say, I wish it wasn't as old, and the oldies say, I wish it wasn't younger, and we all come together, and we all get something, but we've fallen in love with a vision. And when funk happens on the worship team, those with funk dance moves are dancing, and me with no funk, I'm looking and I'm loving it because I know the kingdom is expanding. And our music is missional, our message is missional, and you pray for these men and women. You pray for this church. Yeah, great. You are golden plat. Did I preach us into tomorrow? <laughs> no, we're good. We'll just, just sorry. quickly Don't here. Don't ask me any questions I, I like know, that no. anymore. <laughs> All right. Uh, just next to last one here, uh, number five. What, what do you see here, Kevin, in our church? Obviously, you get to see a ton of churches, and you get to see the good, the bad, the ugly around the world. So what, what, do, you, what do you see here in particular? The pricelessness of this crowd uh, first. I'll just, I'll just reiterate that. Um, uh, this is... For America's future, this is not an option. Um, as a missiologist, as someone who who views culture through a missional lens, this is absolutely um, a must and to die for. And rare is the uh, the second thing to brag on. And I know none of these people even want me to say anything, but I promise you, I, I'm not the dude that is paid to go tell churches nice things. I am very rigorous when I and. And I actually am not paid to stand up and lie um, most of the time. And so um, you have remarkable leadership. I don't know another way to say it. I deeply know Morgan and Carrie. I know all of Morgan's sins because Carrie and I spend a lot of time on the phone. So it's it's pretty dark. Send me a bill. Pretty bad. Long emails up all night. But I know Morgan deeply, and I know Carrie. They're exceptionally rare. They're just very rare. Um, I have gotten to know John through the last few years, and I haven't had the fortune of meeting or spending time with his wife, but I can assure you of this. That is a man of deep water. Um... And I know you know these things. But if you want to know about this church, um, John is amazing. And he's very rare as an elder. And then I met Galen. Now, Morgan brags on these men all the time. So I hear all the, you know, the legend of Galen and the (laughs) legend of John. And then I meet the legends. Um, The thing that I fear, I don't fear Galen, but I do fear men that cut on people. (laughs) How many of you fear that? Anytime you meet a guy that's good with a knife, fear them. Fear them. Um, Pray for your leaders. Galen is so far from my vantage point everything that Morgan says he is. I I will have the privilege of spending time with your deacons, and I know many of the other leaders here. I won't, but what about those sunglasses that Shadrach had on? The the video, yeah. I just want those glasses, so. Uh, maybe I need to look first. Um, 
there's something else that I think is precious here. You're well taught. You're well preached. You are well preached. Um, and I, I do feel a sense of love. When you've, one of the things that multi-ethnic church demands is you, that you don't get your way. And then you throw multi-generational and you really don't get your way. Yeah. Nobody does. And so what is in an act of tremendous love to build a church like this? And I pray that your lives, when you leave, you don't go back to your segregated world. I pray that you with intentionality build mm-hmm. ethnically. Yeah, great. Because to the degree that you build a web like that, you'll have something to say to the lost when they come. If you don't, because the way you gather is the way you scatter. If you're loveless gathered, you're loveless scattered. And all these churches that preach go out there and reach the lost and are loveless on the inside. They don't sacrifice for one another. They have nothing to say, and that's why it doesn't do anything. It's just, it's just social work. But it's not the true work of the church. And that is your great, great, great asset. Yeah. Is you love one another. So let's just close now. Final question here. I guess a worship team can come and uh, sort of set the stage here for how we're, how we're going to close. So Philip and you guys, you can make your way forward if you're in here. So hello, hey, it's like magic. I just got the button under here. Um, but uh, with that in mind, what's one thing that you would exhort us? I mean, you kind of already did, but exhort us to focus on, to keep doing, to concentrate on as a church as we move forward into our future. Um. Don't ever look at the culture and think that anything that is out there is a threat to you. Because it's not. It doesn't matter the Republicans or the Democrats or the Independents or the Yo Mamas. It doesn't matter who's in power. It doesn't. What we think is shocking that's rising up into culture morally or ethically, it is not a threat on the church. It never has been. If we take this seriously and don't try to redefine it but preach it in fact probably to to end I'll just quote a dog a dead old guy Um, Paul that wrote most (laughs) what (laughs) Paul that wrote most of the New Testament Timothy and Paul were inseparable. Um, Timothy, the great pastor at Ephesus. And Paul was imprisoned in the maritime prison, and, and it wasn't like his other imprisonments. He knew his life was over. He said he knew Nero was going to kill him, and he knew he would never be out of those shackles. And this was a real prison. His ankles, I'm sure, were bleeding. He was looking at the hole in the roof of the maritime prison as he penned, Second Timothy. That's the last words we never heard from Paul again because it's reported that shortly after he finished that writing that Nero took he and Peter out on the Ostian way and had them uh, murdered. And so if you knew it was your last shot at telling the pastor of the greatest church in its day your last words, this is what they would be. 2 Timothy 4. And you, you, you read 2 Timothy and you feel this intensity in Paul. He, he, he breaks through this, uh, the, the 
pressures that culture brings. And this is what he said. He says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, listen, who's coming to judge the living and the dead. Saying, Timothy, I charge you. You will soon stand before Jesus Christ. And he will hold you accountable to what you did in Ephesus. This is what he said. Preach the word in season and out of season. And you know what he was meaning? Already in their culture, there was pressure to not preach certain things that were in the word. They were out of season. They were not culturally acceptable. He said, preach the word. Don't worry about what lies in Austin. What lies in this building will change anything that lies in Austin. Preach the word. Keep the love of Jesus Christ alive in your soul. And you will not be stopped. Amen. You will not. Amen. Amen.